Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Thank you for joining us here on ADH. In this increasingly idiotic world where the noise of the minorities tries to drown out everyone else, there doesn't seem to be a political leader in sight to stand up for the majority. Well, we say it here as it is. I used to think I was the voice of the voiceless, but the voiceless now seem to be the majority. So stay with us here on ADH, where the majority will be heard. Last night I analysed in simple terms, I hope, and the response was amazing, the own goal by the Democrats in seeking to prosecute Trump. His ratings and his campaign funds have skyrocketed. Only a matter of hours ago, Tucker Carlson, who does a splendid job on Fox News in America, interviewed Donald Trump and he asked him a leading question and got a very simple response. Here it is. Anything they could throw at you legally that would convince you to drop out of the race? If you get convicted in this case in New York, no, you I'd never drop out. out. No, I'd never drop. It's not my thing. I wouldn't do it. Fantastic, isn't it? I wouldn't do it. No, he's here and good on him. Now, as I said last night, they tried the Russian line that Russia had assisted his presidential campaign. They tried his tax returns. They tried the January 6th riot on the Capitol. They raided his home and now Stormy Daniels. And you heard Tucker Carlson, is there anything they could throw at you legally that would convince you to drop out of the race? His answer was blunt. We need to remember, by the way, that I've said this many times, I'll say it again, under the US Constitution, even if Trump were convicted by a partisan jury in New York, presidential candidacy does not require candidates to have a clean legal record. Now back home, to be fair to the Albanese government on one issue, they're entitled to some latitude and that is the budget mess. On most other big issues, in particular energy and the voice, they are hopelessly wrong and I believe they'll pay for it. If you believe that, you shouldn't whisper it. But the Albanese government were left with a budget mess. 
Though they can't complain because when all of this absurd coronavirus spending was going on, Labor put their hands up in agreement. Me too, they said, frightened to articulate another view. Now, we're swimming in debt. Well, come the May budget, about 10 million middle-income Australians will face one of the largest tax increases in history. The Low and Middle Income Tax Offset, LMITO, will go. This was introduced by the Morrison government and Frydenberg. If you were earning between 37,000 and 126,000, you got an offset. Your tax was reduced by $530. The offset was increased to 1,080, just ahead of the 2019 election, spend money to buy a result. And then in March last year, a Liberal government, not long before the election, it's hard to believe a Liberal government throwing money around, Treasurer Frydenberg added another 420 to the offset, taking the total to $1,500, pumping $11 billion into the economy at exactly the wrong time. Interest rates started to go up and they've barely stopped. So now we've got households facing financial pressure and the tax offset will apparently be removed in the May budget. And this understandably will help to bring down the budget deficit. Now, I'm not opposed to this decision, even though no mention was made of it by Labor during the election campaign. It is a tax increase, but expenditure must be cut. This sort of handout should never have been contemplated by a Liberal government. And for my Victorian viewers, you voted overwhelmingly in favour of Daniel Andrews. He's now off to Canberra, cap in hand, for a multi-billion dollar federal bailout. Call it the coronavirus dividend. So the debt problems of 6.5 million Victorians become now the problems of all of us. Labor in Victoria will go to Labor in Canberra for billions of dollars to prop up Chairman Dan. Not Victorian debt, no, our debt, we'll pay. The net Victorian debt, by the way, is $165 billion. In 2025-26, the Victorian debt, this is Andrews, he won more seats at the last election than they did in the previous one. Everyone voted for him. The debt in Victoria will be more than the debt of New South Wales and Queensland combined. Are you listening, Victorians? $25,000 per head. What will happen? Nothing. Now, one of the most regular comment I get from people is the extent to which they are disturbed by where this country is heading. On many issues, if you disagree with the prevailing view, you become a target for hate. Where in this nation on major issues can you get serious debate? I spoke last night about the Victorian MP, Maura Deeming, who merely wanted to organise a rally to defend safe spaces for women. Because a few pseudo-Nazis arrived on the scene, her leader, the gutless Victorian opposition leader, wanted her thrown out of the party and the parliament, when 90% of Australians more would agree with her. No problem with transgender, but safe spaces for biological women do happen to be important. Recently, a transgender woman won the Australian Women's Golf Classic at the Bonville Golf Resort near Coffs Harbour. Golf fans took to social media, and the concern is, should transgender women be eligible to play in women's sport? Now, at least there should be a debate about this. You can't get debate in this country. At San Francisco State University last week, a college women's swimming champion, Riley Gaines, gave a speech about transgender women participating in women's sport. The trans activist students physically assaulted her and she was trapped in a room for three hours. 
It is clear that the trans activist students incited violence. They screamed dehumanizing language at Riley Gaines, including transphobic bitch. Just have a look at this. students, supposedly educated, eh? And that's what education does to you. When people say the world's going crazy, I can tell you this, a former trustee of the board of that college, City College of San Francisco, said she was proud of the students and, quote, disgusted that a virulently transphobic person like Riley Gaines would be welcomed by anyone. And the woke San Francisco news media were all on side even though Riley Gaines was struck twice and hit in the shoulder and face with a closed fist. So where the hell are we heading? In a different way, this madness is everywhere. I noticed Twiggy Forrest lost an appeal in WA. He wanted to draw water from a river to irrigate his pastoral property. The WA State Administrative Tribunal found that the river was sacred to traditional owners. Here we go again. Andrew Forrest wanted to build nine weirs along the Ashburton River to provide fresh water for access for agriculture. And that agriculture, of course, feeds the nation. But the native title group who took the matter to the tribunal were concerned that the weirs could disturb the water serpent, Warner Mancura, which lives there. A traditional owner said of the water serpent, changes to the river might make Warner Mancura angry he might leave the river. The tribunal agreed. The serpent first, agricultural distance second. Just back to the debt issue, we are swimming in it, but 67 million is available to the ABC to relocate staff to a new office in Western Sydney. 67 million. Half of it, your money, will be spent refurbishing the existing Ultimo headquarters. 27.8 million, in fact, and children at Westmead Hospital, as I told you last night, are in a queue a mile long to achieve appropriate surgery. Now, on the good news front, can we say at last that it appears that Kathleen Folbig, after more than 20 years in prison, convicted over the deaths of her four young children, may be freed. The former New South Wales Chief Justice Tom Bathurst, who's presiding over an inquiry into her conviction, has received submissions in writing, which reportedly, and rightly, cast doubts over the convictions. Now, not all the submissions to Mr. Bathurst KC have been presented. Oral submissions will be delivered at the end of this month. Kathleen Folbig is now 55, serving a 25-year prison sentence after being convicted in 2003 for the death of her four children. As I've said before, in 2021, 76 eminent researchers, including Nobel laureates 
and several Australians of the year, including the Queensland scientist, Professor Ian Fraser, 76 eminent researchers argued that new medical evidence about a mutant gene carried by two of the Folbig children created, quote, a strong presumption that they died from natural causes, unquote. 76 eminent researchers. Another 14 international experts at the time signed a petition making all up 90 top scientists, medical practitioners and science advocates calling on the New South Wales Governor Margaret Beasley to pardon the then 53-year-old Kathleen Folbig and immediately release her from jail, calling for an end to, quote, the miscarriage of justice. 90 top scientists, but still the inquiries go on. And just on this recurring sentiment, where is the world heading, a British intellectual, Professor Matt Goodwin, has recently published a book arguing that British politics has been shaped by, quote, a new elite out of touch with the values of much of Britain. Australia is in that boat, eh? The new elite. The professor argued of this new elite and their woke values that they aren't in government, but they believe they can control complex human activity through laws and hectoring. As he says, these people don't make things, they have non-physical jobs, they just talk, but they've become disconnected from the challenge of the real world. Think of all these people on climate change and coronavirus and, you know, the voice. We can say amen to that, disconnected from the challenges of the real world. Professor Goodwin cited one example where Britons are told that to solve the climate crisis, every building in Britain would have to be insulated. Professor Goodwin then reminds us what the former Cambridge professor, Michael Kelly, had pointed out, and you're talking about the world going mad, that over 30 years, insulating every building in Britain would cost about 3.5 trillion pounds. As he says, an irrational fantasy policy, but it won't stop the elite advocating it. The Teals and others, irrational fantasy policy. Australia's drowning in it. That's where we are. This rubbish is fed to us every day, but disturbingly fed to kids in the classroom. And you rightly ask, where the hell are we heading? So the Shadow Attorney General, Federal Attorney General, the Liberal member for the New South Wales outer Sydney seat of Barara, Julian Lesser, of whom most Australians have never heard, he has resigned from Peter Dutton's front bench in order to campaign for the yes vote on The Voice. As one of my viewers has said, the previously unknown Julian Lisa has broken the record for motherhood statements. But the first thing that has to be said is that Mr Lisa is entitled to his view in a world where increasingly you are not allowed to disagree. I disagree with Julian Lisa, but that disagreement should be resolved on the merit of the case. In his statement resigning from Peter Dutton's front bench, amongst other things, Julian Lisa said, and I quote, Indigenous Australians are our brothers and sisters and we've left them behind in our shared national project, unquote. Now that's high-minded rhetoric, but it's meaningless. What should be said is that in spite of spending $30 billion every year, 30,000 million to close the gap, money spent on indigenous causes, Jacinta Price has forgotten more than Mr. Lisa and I would ever know. She'll tell you that that money spent has had no beneficial impact on the tragic issues confronting many Indigenous Australians in the Northern Territory. And the voice, an absurd term in itself, as I would explain, the voice will make no difference whatsoever either. It'll merely lead to a demand for something else. 
You see, we've got closing the gap on $30 billion. We've had native title. We've had the apology. And as one perceptive respondent on social media to Julian Lisa's statement has pointed out, Mark, I mean, have a look at your screen. And I've said all of this. I mean, you can't read that, but that's what Mark is saying. These are the number A percentage of taxpayer-funded Indigenous Australians. Mark makes the point by saying, and he put this up online, he makes the point that what you see there on the screen is one-tenth, one-tenth of the groups, the voices that already exist. One-tenth. Now, in an interview with Marcia Langton, reported at the weekend, it was headlined, vote no and you won't get a welcome to country again. Ooh, the nation was cheering. That's the most encouraging news to date. Vote no and you won't get a welcome to country. We're sick and tired of being drowned out by welcome to country, presumably designed to make us feel that we don't belong here. It's important to not muddy the waters. What Albanese is proposing, and about which he won't give any detail, is a race-based change to the Constitution. That ought to be unacceptable to the overwhelming majority of Australians. And what's more, in a world which preaches, even if it doesn't practice equality, one small group of Australians, fewer than 4%, get two votes. And we, we're meant to believe, that won't divide the nation. To the young people, the naked proposal to recognise the role of Indigenous Australians in our history sounds inspiring. Bring together our past and our present. And these sentiments would force some Australians, especially the young, do no homework, nod their heads. Why not? Well, hang on. There's a reason they won't give us the detail. We have no knowledge of where this is taking us, but we have Lydia Thorpe to thank. She doesn't want a voice. She doesn't want a treaty. She wants ownership. Young people need to understand what that means. Our capital system works on the principle that if you buy and mortgage your property, you have title to it. What Lydia Thorpe is saying is that even though you've paid the mortgage, it's not your land. And that means you will pay rent on property you think you own. Every time the Prime Minister is asked a question about this character assassination follows, we're racist or we're divisive. Peter Dutton announces that he'll campaign for a no vote and Noel Pearson called it the Judas betrayal of our country. Noel Pearson can say it, but if Dutton did, all hell would break loose. Senator Jacinta Price will vote no, a brilliant Indigenous achieving Australian. Noel Pearson accused her of being punched down by white fellas. And so Jacinta Price gets hate mail. If you're on the side of the yes vote, you can use any language you like, that's virtuous. If you're on the no side and you seek to explain yourself, then no matter how reasonable or courteous the explanation, you are a racist. Professor Marcia Langton, the co-chair of the Indigenous Voice to Parliament Design Group said, of oh, Peter Dutton, I think they rely absolutely on deceit and misrepresentation. And I have to say, a great deal of ignorance, unquote. In other words, shut up Dutton, because you advocate, no, you shouldn't be heard. Well, Vicky Campion, writing about this matter last week brilliantly, highlighted that, quote, documents from the original working group, there is on your screen, released under freedom of information laws, reveal that any quote, any voice to parliament, these are documents, they're there. Any voice to parliament should be designed so that it could support and promote a treaty making process and that the treaty must include, there it is, it's on the screen, a fixed percentage of gross national product 
rights, land tax, and royalties, unquote. She warns that meetings of minutes in the preparation of all of this, the voice, involve changing the names on the map, on the map of Australia, so that, quote, Aboriginal names for places and things across Australia should be the norm and used by wider Australians. And the flag must be changed, it says. These are in minutes of these meetings. The flag must be changed because, quote, the Australian flag symbolises the injustices of colonisation, unquote. Now, one of the Prime Minister doesn't want to provide detail. Documents released by the National Indigenous Australians Agency argue, National Indigenous Australians Agency argue, and this is why the no case must do some homework and young people must be courteously informed. Listen to this, quote, the dialogue discussed that a treaty could include a proper say in decision-making, the establishment of a truth commission, reparations, a financial settlement, such as seeking a percentage of GDP, the resolution of land, water and resources issues, recognition of authority and customary law and guarantees of respect for the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. It's all there. As Vicky Campion rightly asks, why should we have to rely on freedom of information to get these details? Why won't the Prime Minister be open and honest about the details, the lovely cosy sentiments about changing the constitution to recognise the role of First Nations people in Australia's history, make the very significant changes in the government of our country. And this is what it represents. And as I said, as Vicky Campion has pointed out, this is all there in documents from the original working group, but you can only get it under freedom of information. The Prime Minister and the proponent of The Voice, any proponents, don't want us to know these things. And if you don't know, you vote no. We must not accept race-based changes to our constitution. Now look, I'll tell you what's driving me nuts. The willingness of an exultant left-wing media to bury the Liberal Party. Now, if you believe the headlines, you'd think that all was needed was to throw the soil on the grave and the Liberal Party would be interred forever. And the headlines are everywhere. Lessons for Liberals in the Aston Poll, we're told. Ultra-conservatives stuck in the past. By-election loss has set Dutton a daunting task. PM's collaborative approach, a lesson for the Liberal Party. You've got to be kidding. What, the Liberal Party teaching lessons to the Liberals? Poll win, a blow to the Liberal brand. That's how it goes on. The biggest problem political parties have is to believe their own bulldust. Labor won 32.6% of the vote at the federal election, which means 67.4% of voters didn't vote for them. The Coalition won 35.7% of the vote, not impressive but more than half a million Australians preferred the coalition to Labor. And let's face it, it was a crook coalition. And then the damage continued in New South Wales. The reason Perrottet and co were hammered is because they vacated the field traditionally occupied by the Liberal Party. Low tax, small government, serious about debt, a good education. Instead, we had a budget last year in New South Wales which beat Gough Whitlam's record, increasing spending by 25.2%. A deficit expected to be 3.6 billion turned out to be over 11 billion. State government debt in New South Wales forecast to rise to $115 billion. This is not Liberal Party stuff. And the Morrison legacy, spending on coronavirus, closing down businesses, shutting down schools, all is now being proven to be nothing more than an alarmist strategy. 
I warned about all of that at the time, and I was cancelled. I well remember when Kevin Rudd won government, Kevin 07, remember? He won 23 seats from the coalition. The Howard government lost 22, but Rudd Labor won 43.3% of the primary vote, Howard coalition 42%. On first preference votes, there was about 160,000 in it. Peter Costello had been not a good, a brilliant treasurer. In the week following the defeat, he and I had dinner. I urged him to stand for the Liberal leadership, to which he replied, you won't mind me saying this, mate, I'm not going to spend 10 years in opposition after all the work I've done as Treasurer. And I said to him, hang on, it won't be 10 years, this mob will implode. By 2010, three years later, a Costello-led coalition would have won the election. Instead, there were changes in the Liberal leadership, Tony Abbott almost won seven seats, and at the next election won 18, and Labor were gone. It's the same thing here, believe me. And it's begun. The energy crisis is about to hit. And it's taken the new Environment Minister in New South Wales, Labor, Penny Sharp, to remind us there is an energy crisis around the corner. And this is all this zero emissions nonsense. Then, of course, Albo's crying, urging us to back the voice. And if you don't, you're un-Australian, you're racist, and you'll have all sorts of abuse hurled at you. Then there's the economy. Well, Tom Switzer is the executive director of the Centre for Independent Studies. He shouldn't be. Tom Switzer is a metaphor of the real problems in the Liberal Party, which could be easily addressed. The party should be falling over people like Tom Switzer to be in the parliament in Canberra. He's talented, he's splendidly educated, first-class honours from Sydney Uni, a master's degree in international relations. He's worldly, he's articulate, as you'll hear in a minute, and a former Australian schoolboy track and field champion. He's got the lot. But when you've got people like Michael Fotios determining who gets the leadership of the Liberal Party and who wins pre-selection, then you're in trouble. The Liberal Party problems are easily solved. You can't have people like the Victorian Liberal leader, as I said last night, demonising women. You comb the membership for the best candidates. Look what Labor did, putting Andrew Charlton into Parramatta. I'm telling you, Charlton is gifted and would be a much better treasurer than Chalmers. Labor, of course. You get the best candidates and you throw the photiosses of this world onto the political scrap heap and then in policy determination, get back into the liberal field. Well, here's a man whom I think ought to be there, Tom Switzer, currently, as I said, <laughs> executive director of the Centre for Independent Studies. Tom, welcome to the program. I've most probably ruined your political career if you in fact... <laughs> If you, in fact, are, are, are still interested. But what do you make of all these people writing the Liberal Party's obituary? Well, look, history is littered with examples of the distinguished intellectuals and prominent media journalists writing the Liberal Party off after they lose power. Um, you know, if you go back to the uh, Gough Whitlam, it's time election, that period in 73, 74, even 75, the overwhelming consensus was the Liberal Party would be in the political wilderness for a long time. No one saw Malcolm Fraser come from nowhere to smash Gough Whitlam in a landslide election. Fraser, your old boss, Alan, went on to be Prime Minister for the best part of eight years. Of course, after the fifth consecutive election lost to Labor in 1993, distinguished intellectuals, even politicians like Chris Puplik, were saying the Liberal Party was over, it was finished because it was too conservative. And yet two years later, John Howard wants to write it as uh, yesterday's man. He came back to win a landslide election victory over Paul Keating. I could go on, Alan. You gave the example of Kevin Rudd when he was in the political stratosphere. 
time and again, when the Liberal Party is written off, it's just like uh, the kiss of death, but it amounts to mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Uh, it can bounce back, but it has to bounce back by embracing sound policies well, that's the point. and, moreover, distinguishing Tom, itself from Tom, the Labor Party. The point, that is the point that I've been making over and over again. People say, oh, the Liberal Party was smashed across the nation. The Liberal Party was smashed in the Aston by-election. I say, hang on, hang on. The Liberal Party weren't beaten. They didn't compete. There was someone there, they were something, but they weren't Liberal, were they? I think that's exactly right, Alan. And if you look at Malcolm Fraser in 1975, John Howard in 1996, Tony Abbott in 2013, uh, they were centre-right Liberal parties. They weren't wet, no. uh, mushy Liberal leaders. They weren't cowardly, ideological, rudderless leaders uh, in the thrall of fashionable orthodoxies. Those types just meld into the media mind meld and they go away. They don't make an impact. You've got to distinguish yourself in politics. How demanding is this march of the cultural left? I mean, my concern is that it's in schools and children are being indoctrinated, mm. not educated. And many of those people predicting the demise of the Liberal Party are merely articulating the wishful thinking of the left. Well, look, I reflect the views of John Howard when he says he would like occasionally for any member of parliament, but particularly the Liberal Party, which is supposed to be the custodian of the centre-right tradition in this country, for them to more vigorously defend, you know, Western tradition of freedom of expression, you know, call out the corporates for pretending to be yes. social activists. Yes. Uh, condemn those so-called sensibility readers who want to um, censor or, or uh, re-edit children's books. Um, respect trans people by all means, but oppose the extreme gender activists who have hijacked these issues to cancel women. Support Indigenous recognition in the Constitution, but raise serious doubts about the constitutional powers of a voice. I don't know if there are many people in the Liberal Party doing that these no, days. There are a few of them. Not at all. And then if you talk, if you look at the people that perhaps out there the voter listens to, that's the headlines in the paper and so on. Well, I just say to those people, and Tom's already alluded to this, many people, most of the people in the press gallery, and down there they think they know everything, but they're meant to have their ear to the ground, so they really should mm. know the movements that are taking place in politics. They argued that once the Liberal Party elected Tony Abbott to the leadership of the party, the Liberal Party were unelectable. This man was taking the party back a hundred years. This is all the people that are writing the headlines now. Yes. Abbott won 25 seats from Labor. Uh, Tom, let me ask you this. I wonder today if Abbott were a candidate in Western Sydney, would he be unelectable? I think not. Yeah, look, I think it depends on the areas. I mean, look, there's no question, Alan, that the centre of gravity, political gravity in some of these erstwhile safe Liberal seats like North Sydney, where I'm from, uh, Warringah, mm. uh, where Tony Abbott held the seat for many years. Well, they'll wake um, they, yeah, they, they've clearly moved. And I think there's two things at play here. The younger generations, and this gets back to the point you alluded to before, a lot of the education system now is teaching young people to think in terms of uh, a left view of the world, to be ashamed of Australians, and they don't question orthodoxies the way that, say, you and I did when we were growing up. And the other factor is that a lot of wealthy people in these traditionally affluent 
liberal electorates, they're now indulging in a sort of post-materialist guilt about uh, capitalism and about uh, Western heritage. And that gives them the luxury to support parties like the Greens or the so-called mm. teal independents. Mm. So yeah. it's a challenge. Yeah. But I certainly think that the centre of gravity in middle Australia is Definitely. basically conservative well, I, I keep and with millions of ordinary people. Millions of people out there without yeah. a political home. They're now looking for a home to go to. Give them a Liberal Party home by standing for orthodox Liberal values. I mean, Albo won the election with 32.6% of the vote. But mm. let me remind our viewers, there was a swing against Labor in that election, a swing against Labor of almost 1%. They didn't vote for Labor. And remember, they, didn't vote for Labor. they rejected Morrison. When do you think, yeah. Tom, when do you think, Tom, the Liberal Party will understand that you get nowhere mimicking the policies of the opposition? Well, I don't think Twitter is a role model for Liberal MPs. Okay. And my concern is that a lot of lot of MPs uh, think that the Twitter mob represents middle America. Yes. They're not the middle Australia. They're, they're, they're a small, unrepresentative minority whose undue influence poisons public discourse. I, I think Peter Dutton should be, condemned, should be praised for uh, distinguishing himself from the Labor Party on the question of the voice. I, I think that more and more people will have doubts about the voice to Parliament, Definitely. and that is a good way of distinguishing Definitely. the Liberal Party from the Labor Party. And my sense is, given that it's very hard to win referendums when there's not bipartisan support, in fact, I don't think it's happened at all since 1901, um, Dutton has a decent chance of winning the referendum, and that would probably place the Liberal Party give them a bit of a, 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 a sort of a you know, real, real boost uh, in morale, and I think the circumstances just, just can change. The other point to bear in mind, just quickly, Alan, that, that, economic circumstances. That, that's a very a, valid point you just made. A very, put yep. your stake in the ground on the voice, mm. on energy policy, mm. and on the economy. Stick that stake in the ground, and I'll tell you what, the victory lap that Albo and co are on will end very rapidly. I don't think they'll get to the finishing post, which is an image you would understand. Your final word, therefore, <laughs> about the immediate future of the Liberal Party? Well, I think that, that the immediate future is to listen, look, look, at, look at the lessons of the past. Every time uh, it's been written off, it bounces back with tremendous force. But it has to remember it's the custodian of the centre-right party. So, you know, have a vision where enterprise is encouraged, hard work is rewarded, and moreover, where genuine freedom of expression is tolerated. And that's a winning message. It can appeal to a wide range of people, Alan. Good on you. And I just say to my viewers, get a look at this bloke. He was rejected. He was rejected in a Liberal Party selection. That's the metaphor of the problem. And eventually, I think the party will wake up. Tom, great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Well, it's great to be with you, Alan. All you've done. And this bloke could run a very quick 800 to those of you who are interested in track and field. <laughs> there he is. Good on you. Good to talk to you. There he is, Tom Switzer. You too, Alan. All the best. Let's take a look at this energy issue because we are now stuck with the so-called safeguard mechanism. There was Bowen, the climate change and energy minister, prancing around Parliament House, having done a deal with the Greens. I don't mean any offence, but the voting public most probably don't have a clue that this is a carbon tax. This will lead to the closure of manufacturing plants, which are intensive producers of carbon dioxide, so what's Australia going to say about Albanese and Bowen when electricity prices climb as they are, factories close and foreign investment finds a home other than Australia? As I said, here's Bowen jumping up and down thinking he's the latter-day Labor Party hero by tying a noose around the neck of Australian businesses and families. But in fact, good government 
should be getting out of the way of individuals and companies, boasting not about passing legislation and passing more bills than the, its predecessor, but boasting about passing fewer. Quite frankly, I'm sick of the rhetoric, but if you don't understand the detail of policy, I suppose you have to settle for the rhetoric. Albanese says, quote, we've dealt with bushfires, we've dealt with flooding, we deal with the impact ongoing of climate change. Unquote. Well, of course, he hasn't dealt with any of that. Certainly not flooding or bushfires. The victims are still there, whistling in the dark, filling out forms. Senator Matt Canavan from Queensland is always the breath of fresh air. He wrote recently that, quote, Two weeks ago, which was in March, the Biden administration in the USA approved the Willow Project, a massive new oil development in Alaska. It will provide 180,000 barrels, he said, of oil a day and 263 million tonnes of carbon emissions over its life. Senator Canavan then said this week, the Senate sat to all hours of the morning. One session went past 4am debating a bill that would cut Australia's carbon dioxide emissions by 205 million tonnes. Asks Matt Canavan, how will Australia's actions stop one bushfire when at the stroke of a US president's pen, all of our carbon dioxide emissions savings are wiped out? And that, he said, is just in the United States of America. Too much common sense for the average bloke. He joins me, Matt Canavan. Thank you. I mean, can you answer your own question? How does punishing Australian business, and by inference all Australians and the Australian economy with this so-called safeguard mechanism, how does that solve anything? It doesn't doesn't do anything, Alan. It uh, doesn't take uh, a PhD to work out that uh, if the rest of the world is continuing to emit carbon emissions and we cut ours in Australia when we're uh, we're worth less than 1.3% of global emissions now. Um, it's not going to do a single thing. And as you said there, as you alluded to, it's only in the United States, those statistics. Uh, meanwhile, China this year, just this year, is building 104 gigawatts of coal-fired power stations. About A, a coal-fired power station is about a gigawatt. So, so in effect, China is building two coal-fired power stations a week. It's been two weeks since... Uh, that legislation passed, so four coal-fired power stations have been erected on average there uh, in mainland China. Uh, and as you say, Chris Bowen's prancing around, uh, acting like King Canute, thinking that he's uh, held back the tides uh, and the world's healing thanks to his single-handed efforts. It's Sickening. absolutely absurd. Sickening. And eventually, this kind of fantasy will get punched in the face by reality. Mm. Eventually, reality is going to chase us down mm. uh, with higher prior power prices, with the closures of manufacturing, as you mentioned, and we'll be left without the economic powerhouse that has uh, generated so much prosperity oh, oh, for yes. Australia. I mean, we, we should be the energy powerhouse of the world. May I, I don't ever criticise you, but may I just have a little criticism here of the great Senator Canavan, because you're a trained scientist. Shouldn't we be referring to carbon dioxide emissions, not carbon emissions? Because the ABC love presenting these smokestack pictures and everyone looks and thinks, well, of course we should be doing something to eliminate all that. That's carbon. We're talking about carbon dioxide. Uh, does the scientist uh, offer me approval a, for that? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a fair, it's a fair point, Alan, uh, and I'm guilty as uh, many others of sometimes lapsing into the language of the left. They're very good at uh, manipulating the English language and effectively changing the terms of engagement. And I shouldn't do that, but you're right. It's a colourless, odourless gas. Yeah. Uh, you cannot see it, so therefore it's not what you see coming out of those smokestacks. That's water vapour. Mm. Uh, those coal fires, it's, it's literally just water. It's uh, perfectly harmless. Uh, it's odourless too. You can't even smell no. carbon dioxide. 
and 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 we're increasingly seeing, you know, we're seeing with the, the world temperature records that there hasn't been uh, significant warming now no. for at least a decade. So on some measures, two decades. Uh, and so something is very, very wrong with the models that we've been relying on uh, to make these massive and, mm. re- and very, very costly changes. Uh, look, I, I think, I don't know if, I don't think the science has settled and I don't think the science has settled either way on issues like carbon dioxide emissions, mm. but we certainly shouldn't be handicapping our entire no, industrial that's economy the point, based isn't it? I mean, on evidence, which is risk yeah, really not I, I that mean, strong. To, to our viewers, I just say the point that Matt Canavan has made often, and I've made it here, that on top of America, and you've just heard that statistic, the UK's opening up oil drilling in the North Sea. He's written this and talked about it over... Germany's reopening 24 coal-fired power stations. China, as you heard him say, is building two coal-fired power stations a week. Matt, are we crazy? People are saying to me every day, and I'm sure they say to you, what the hell are we up to in this country and where are we heading? Uh, They're genuinely concerned, but they feel they have no voice. Well, I think it's uh, the bonfire of the vanities, isn't it? We've become quite vain as a as a society when we haven't had a major recession, really a proper recession, since the early 1990s. So, you know, things, it's human nature to think things just happen automatically, that somehow uh, the wealth that uh, we enjoy in this country comes to us like manna from heaven and we don't have to work hard on it or make tough any tough choices to generate it. Uh, previous generations of Australians knew those uh, those tough choices, made the tough decisions, and we're just living the legacy of their their hard work. But if we keep going down this road, this garden path of thinking that we can uh, put new taxes on the economy, uh, we can uh, undercut the industrial prosperity of our manufacturing sector without consequence, well, we'll soon we'll soon realise that that's a complete fantasy. Mm. Uh, I just hope we don't drive over that cliff before mm. uh, before we realise it, because it'll be very very painful for lots Absolutely. of people, and so- the people suffering from such pain won't be Chris Bowen, and uh, they won't be Anthony Albanese. I mean, they might lose their ministerial jobs, they'll get a pension or whatever, they'll be fine. It's the people on the manufacturing and factory floors here that are going to be the real victims uh, of this uh, complete uh, lack of common sense in Canberra. You put it splendidly in simple language. Matt Canavan simply said, why are we currently letting other countries do what they like while we handcuff ourselves? And he called it an act of economic self-harm. Now, remember, I've talked about this national economic suicide note for years and years. Economic self-harm for no environmental benefit. What, though, is the consequence really now in, in the language that you use of the deal that's been done with the Greens? Well, we're just not going to be able to make things here in this country. You might recall that when coronavirus first came on the scene, there was this sort of national waking that, oh my God, we rely so much on China and other countries for basic manufacturing goods. Why don't we bring some more stuff home? Uh, that's not going to happen if we continue to adopt these kinds of policies. For example, Alan, the steel industry uh, is under the gun that through this new carbon tax, we, despite having the or despite exporting the world's largest amount of coking coal and iron ore, the things that go into making steel, we now import uh, 50% of our steel needs from overseas. Now, you're not going to build another steel mill, particularly given that the Labor Party has negotiated a hard cap with the Greens on this carbon tax. So it's not just a tax on current production, that's bad enough. It also means if you want to build a new steel mill to, say, 
you know, let's just say we should become self-sufficient again, you'll have to offset all of your emissions. You'll have to buy carbon credits for all of it, not just part of it as existing production. And that's going to be a, a cost widely above what anyone could afford. Uh, and you just won't get that happening. It also puts this, this, this tax goes on our petrol refining, okay. our last two petrol okay. refineries. Why would we put them at risk? I Again, know. we're in a massive net importer of oil. We should be building more refineries. Investors will go somewhere else. Now, let me ask this. Why then would outfits like Blue Scope, the steel giant, and the explosives maker Orica throw their support behind this policy? These are two of the country's biggest manufacturers. Mark Vassella, the Blue Scope Steel's chief executive, said, quote, Blue Scope's previous concerns in respect to potential adverse of impacts from the safeguard mechanism have been materially alleviated. Now, just before Matt answers that for viewers, what is happening here? The nation's heaviest polluting companies will be forced to cut their carbon footprint by up to 5% each year from July 1 until the end of the decade. Now, they either purchase carbon credits generated by carbon offset projects like tree planting, or by switching old fossil fuel technologies to cleaner systems. So, Matt, I don't understand. What is Blue Scope Steel and what are Orica? What are they on about? Well, there's a couple of reasons for why these major companies are doing deals with their own grave diggers, uh, Alan, and, and, and one of those is because the nefarious thing about this legislation is the minister gets to decide how much carbon credits you have to buy. And so it's very complicated algorithms or formulas that work out how much you have to buy. So you can imagine in such a context what would happen to a business that came out and criticised uh, the Labor Green deal that's been done this week. What do you think the minister might do uh, when it comes around, when his brief comes around and say, how much should be those scopes still pay? Of course, they're going to mouth sweet nothings in public to the minister to try and get a good deal. That's not what they're telling us behind the scenes, though, uh, I must say. The second reason for this, too, is uh, because of this hard cap for existing operators, for incumbents like Blue Scope that already exist in the market, they're not doing, doing so bad. The real issue is those who want to build new things in this country. So if you want to build a new steel mill, a new coal mine, a new gas field, you are hit much, much more thanks to the dirty deal that the Labor Party did with the Greens. And it's often the way that incumbents are often welcome new regulation to the extent that it keeps out competition and entrance. But as I said, we're well behind the eight ball on manufacturing. We need to regain lost ground by rehoming jobs, uh, stopping China stealing our own manufacturing uh, sectors. Uh, I mean, and this we thing should be puts an us energy back, superpower. this carbon tax puts us back a mile We, we should that. be an energy yeah, and we got, without cheap energy, <laughs> and we're demonizing, without cheap energy, we won't we're get that manufacturing. We're demonising the things that make us rich. I just want to come back to this because our viewers would be very interested in your thoughts on this because a stack of Australian miners and manufacturers and industry financiers, 17 of them, are calling for more ambitious climate reform to meet the goal of the Paris Agreement and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. I mean, do these outfits, BHP, Rio Tinto, Woodside, BP, Fortescue, Wes Farmers, Westpac, do they know what they're talking about? Or are they saying one thing in the public place because they're frightened of the government and behind the scenes are saying something else? Well, there is another factor there with those large companies that are publicly listed. Uh, the superannuation funds and investment funds based in London uh, have their ESG hooks uh, into them. And that's, this has been a phenomenon right across the Western world that to get finance from these groups, they have to act or at least perceive to be acting in a woke fashion to do so. So the ESG acronym, uh, Alan, should has to be renamed 
It's meant to stand for environmental, social governance, all these warm and fuzzy things. It actually means extreme shortages guaranteed. That's what's happening across the Western world that are, that are from companies that are following ESG principles. They're not investing in oil and gas and the things you need uh, to provide not just adequate manufacturing goods, but also food. People forget that about half the world's food comes from fertilisers made by natural gas. And you have the remarkable situation now where the the facility, the BAS facility, BASF facility in Germany that invented urea, uh, the thing that's revolutionised the world, it shut down in the last few months because of Germany's insane green policies that have pushed up energy costs and made it impossible for Western nations now to grow their own food. So Western countries are reliant on Russia, the Middle East and China, who are the biggest producers of urea in the world. And in a few months' time, by the end of this year, Alan, we won't in Australia produce any urea uh, in this country. We will be reliant for about half our foods production on other nations. And that's an absolute disgrace in a country that has such mm. abundant energy and natural resources. Oh, just coming back to our viewers, what's happening here is Australia's, I repeat, 215 biggest polluters, quote unquote, will be forced by legislation to cut their carbon footprint by about 5% a year until the end of the decade to deliver about a third of the cuts needed to reach Bowen's 2013 climate goal. And that's all okay, no problems, no problems. But the rest of the world continues on with increased carbon dioxide emissions. It's unbelievable, this stuff, and it's dangerous and it's damaging, and the government is not telling us the truth. Ma Matt, I've said from day one, just to finish up, this is an economic suicide note. Why should I change my mind? Well, it is a real, real problem. I just want to come back to one thing about uh, China too. Uh, not only is this a complete fraud in the Australian people, it's a scam perpetuated by the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, they have been going around the world promoting this fact that we should do these things and paying lip service to climate agreements, saying they will do something on climate. As I say, then they go around and build coal-fired power stations like they're going out of fashion. And how can we not see here that this is just a total scam here, that, that they, are, they are, of course, perpetuating the West's uh, somewhat uh, self-delusional uh, uh, suicide tendencies here uh, to advantage themselves. And instead of putting handica handicaps on our own industry, what we should be doing is taking action against China's illegal actions to support its own manufacturing industries Absolutely. and undercut and undermine Western manufacturing. Absolutely. So today we've got this ridiculous thing of the, the Albanese government dropping our WTO action on Bali, which was kind of nothing anyway. Why don't we put tariffs on Chinese steel? Yeah. Like fire, fire with fire. These guys, they're, they're massively subsidising their steel industry, completely at odds with international trade agreements. We have the absolute right uh, mm. and now the moral uh, case uh, yeah. to act on that and respond with, with actual fire rather mm. than these meek, meek, meek efforts where we say, say we're going to take you to court, we're going to write you a letter. We'll never get any, any change from China Matt, to do we'll, that. We'll leave it there. It's wonderful always to talk to you. I'm just saying to our viewers, you see, we are, can be an energy superpower. That has been the source of our wealth. That's been the source of our economic growth. And we're now being dictated by the rest of the world who go on and they please themselves to actually demonise coal and fossil fuels. And you've got idiots like Bowen and others uh, utterly irresponsible. These people are not acting in the national interest, they're acting in an ideological interest and the damage is down the road, make no mistake. We'll keep talking about it and we'll keep talking to this man who breathes hope into the electorate out there, but I'll tell you what, there aren't many voices uh, sharing his views. Matt, wonderful to talk, keep at it, we'll keep at it and we'll talk again soon. That's Senator Matt. Thanks very much, Alan, keep up the good work. Yeah, Matt Canavan from Queensland.
Well, let's go to David Maddox in Britain, where political controversy seems to continue to be the order of the day. Police, as we know, have now swooped on the home of Peter Murrell's elderly mother in Dunfermline, Scotland. Peter Murrell is, of course, the husband of Nicola Sturgeon, the former Scottish leader. Now, the husband Murrell was the Scottish National Party's chief executive. He was initially held by police as part of an investigation into party funding and was then released without charge. The investigation is about the alleged misuse of party finances. Investigators are looking at what happened to more than £1.1 million raised by Scottish independence campaigners in 2017, which was supposed to have been ring-fenced, but may have been used for other purposes. Police have now impounded a luxury motorhome in the backyard of Peter Murrell's elderly mother. They've removed it. No one seems to know where it is. Well, if, if anyone knows, it'll be David Maddox. He's the political editor of Express <laughs> Online. You can read David at express.co.uk. And he joins me. David, thank you for your time. You should know where this £110,000 <laughs> motorhome is. Some motorhome. It apparently has extraordinary interiors, a fully functioning kitchen, a shower room, electric shelves, felt line walls, mood lighting. What the hell would that have been doing in the home of Nicola Sturgeon's mother-in-law? Well, that, that, that is one of the many, the many questions. It's been a remarkable fall from grace for the Sturgeons, or the Sturgeon-Murrell partnership at the top of the Scottish Nationalists. Not one that was entirely unpredictable, I have to say. But, um, yeah, the, the motorhome, we were all making uh, Breaking Bad comparisons, actually, at one point in, in Scotland. But uh, uh, it's... <laughs> I'm not entirely sure where it is, but it may well end up at a police auction, the way what, things are going. What, what is your intelligence about her resignation? Because we now find out this police investigation has been going on since way back in 2021. Locals say this motorhome, or whatever you call it, arrived at the home of Nicola Sturgeon's mother-in-law in January 2021. Yeah. Well, the story they're putting out uh, came in one of our sister papers this morning, the Daily Record, uh, is that uh, it was meant for a, uh, as a as a kind of election vehicle to go around the country in, which seems, uh, well, I mean, it's possible. Usually people pick kind of big coaches for these things, but... Uh, the whole thing, the whole thing is very weird. I mean, this it's is an inside out, job, yes, isn't it? This is an yeah. inside job. There are whinges in the Scottish National Party who have actually alerted police because they're saying that six hundred thousand yeah. pounds, six hundred thousand pounds, is allegedly missing from the SNP. Mm. Peter Murrell, uh, Sturgeon's husband, is the former chief executive. They're searching reportedly several premises. I mean, they ransacked the barbecue. I mean, what the hell that would have to do with it, I don't know. The new leader <laughs> replacing Sturgeon, this Humzar Yousaf, says the Sturgeon husband won't be suspended from the party because he's innocent until proven guilty. Uh, I mean, you've always got your ear to the ground here. What is going on? Do you know any more well, uh, than we're publicly being told? <laughs> It's it's hard to say for legal reasons on on everything, but it's um, I mean certainly on the suspension thing, there, there's definitely a, a double rule going on here. So Murrell's not suspended, but uh, a few years ago they suspended an SNP MP, Michelle Thompson, 
for a very similar thing, much but much less money. Um, she was uh, later found innocent, so she's back in the party, but she's pointing out that she was treated very differently. The issue here, though, goes back years, and uh, there's been a number of resignations actually kind of leading up to this over months, including the the um, treasurer of the party yes. resigned because yeah, he wasn't I mean, allowed well, to see the, the, the accountants. It turned out yesterday that the auditors, the auditors resigned, resigned six, six months, months ago. ago. The accountants who yeah. worked with the party for more than a decade, yeah. they resigned. So now they've got to appoint yeah. auditors to the party in order to have accounts prepared for the Electoral Commission by July. So yeah. there's been something going on for some time, because as I said, this all began in July 2021. That's new two years ago, mm. where police launched a formal investigation into the SNP's finances. They received complaints about how donations made from an independence campaign had been used. But, but David, they're big numbers, aren't they? £667,000 believed to have been raised. And then the accounts showed that the SNP had only £97,000 in the bank at the end of 2019. Yeah. Where's it all gone? Yeah, it's, no one knows. It's, it, well, this is the question, and really, you know, it's not the sort of thing you lose down the back of a sofa. I mean, there have been question marks over, even at the time when they launched the Independence Fund, there were question marks over the time about where this money was going, what it would mm. be used for. Mm. And now it seems a lot of it's just disappeared. Mm. Um, you know, it, it it's difficult to say uh, that... Uh, mm. There's an innocent explanation mm. for all this. There may well be, but no. it's, it's well, hard to know, see If you one. don't know, if you don't know, no one knows. Just on a quick one on Rishi Sunak. His personal poll ratings have improved, but in the polls there's not a lot of encouragement for Starmer. I mean, 37% think that Sunak would make the most capable PM. Only 36% said Starmer. Mm. Sunak's liked as much as Starmer, 43%. But while 49% don't like Sunak, 52% don't like Starmer. But then when you wrap all that up, 77% are dissatisfied with how the government is running the country. And in the overall voting intentions, 49% want Labor, which is down two points on the February poll, but only 26% want the Conservatives. Uh, what do you, come on, you tell me, what do you make of all this? Yeah. Well, the polls are all over the place at the moment. Uh, the poll in company we were working with, Techni, had the lead, I think, at 15% the last time we checked it for Labour. But it, the lead is actually narrowing. It's narrowed quite a lot. I think the issue here is that Starmer and Sunak are so similar that both uninspiring, fairly bland characters who seem to kind of uh, happily kind of uh, settle in centrist politics but, you know, it, in the end, it's becoming a who do you think is more capable of doing the job than the other mm. uh, rather than an ideological battle. And that's, uh, I think, I mean, I've always said that the uh, Conservatives' secret weapon is Keir Starmer because he is so uninspiring. He's also, uh, he, he's also very kind of contradictory in what he's saying. I mean, there's an awful lot of hypocrisy. He said one set of things to become leader of the Labour Party, promising to carry on Jeremy Corbyn's far-left legacy. As soon as he becomes leader, he drops out, drops being the arch-remainer and suddenly declares he's a Brexiteer and he's all in favour of protecting borders and clamping down on criminals. It's like, 
You know, you can't you can't really trust what the man says. Well, just the age-old question, okay, before we go. Now, so on those poll figures, where does Boris Johnson fit in? I think I think Boris's chance has, has gone for now, and uh, I think it could be worse for him because, looking at it, and this is a, this is a long-off prediction, but you know we're looking at a at an election in autumn next year, I think the Conservatives are going to narrowly do it. Mm, As yeah. things stand at Very the moment, I think they're going, to Very win, they're going to win a narrow majority. Very interesting. Very interesting. Good on you, David. Good to talk to you, because on those recent polls, I mean, the Conservatives will be flogged. But the gap, as David said, is narrowing. It's interesting stuff. It all happens over there. Controversy everywhere. And this man is right in the centre of it, knows the lot. David, great to talk to you. David Maddox in Britain. Look, before we go, now this is all behind the scenes, so to speak. You won't read what I'm about to talk about on the front page, or you won't even hear it discussed. But over the last few weeks, I think this is really important. We've seen significant economic moves against the West, and that has indirectly and concerningly security implications. Brazil, Russia, India, China, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, Argentina, the United Arab Emirates, countless African nations, and even France have turned against the United States, I'm talking about economically here, and its allies via the US dollar. This is serious stuff, let me explain. Since 1973, all natural resources around the world, most importantly oil, have been traded in the US dollar. And the deal was simple. The United States would be the world's policeman. It would work to crush communism, Islamic radicalism, and any other threat to global peace. In return, resource exporting nations like Saudi Arabia and manufacturing nations like China and India would sell their goods in the US and use their US dollar reserves to buy American debt. As a result, the United States has been able to rack up huge debts and deficits, but keep interest rates at a manageable level. This is simple economics. But no longer does this status quo hold. The gig is up. Over the last three months, the East has turned against the West, shooting the West in its Achilles heel. Brazil and Argentina have announced that they will build a common currency to trade and transact. Iraq will sell oil to China in Chinese yuan. China and France have completed a liquefied natural gas transaction in Chinese yuan. China and Brazil are trading iron ore in one. India and Malaysia are now settling transactions in the Indian rupee. The Kenyan president told his people to dump their US dollars. The Namibian president has told Germany to back off and stop lecturing them on how bad China is. The Rwandan president has told the BBC it'll no longer be lectured by the West. This goes on. Meanwhile, China has surrounded Taiwan with fighter jets and battleships. And in August, all these countries are meeting in South Africa to discuss how to collaborate and advance their geopolitical and economic power. So what's the point with all of this? The United States is losing credibility at a rate we haven't seen in decades. This is the Biden factor. Countries are fed up with the West lecturing them on gay marriage and climate change and human rights. They want to run their own show. They're fed up with being forced to use the US dollar to trade and invest. They want change. 
They want a multipolar world order instead of a unipolar world order. That means they want an end to the United States being the predominant world power, the world policeman, so to speak. Now, the consequences will be profound. The change will force Australia to wake up. If much of the world turns against the United States of America, we can't assume the United States will protect us or will be able to protect us here in Australia. Remember in 1941, the British abandoned Australia for Singapore. We need to get serious. We've got to boost our defence spending. We've got to cut down on waste. We've got to revitalise our manufacturing. In short, we've got to turn our economy around and in a hurry. And we should start, as we discussed with Matt Canavan earlier, with reasserting our status as an energy superpower and stop this Bowen and Albanese rubbish about demonising fossil fuels. How on earth, you heard Matt Canavan, can we survive in this brave new world if we import 90% of our fertiliser, import 90% of our fuel, and import 90% of our pharmaceuticals? It is a disaster waiting to happen. We've got to wake up before it's too late. That's it from me tonight and for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the program. So don't forget, you can hear tonight's program on your podcast app. Just search Alan Jones at six o'clock in the morning. And of course, all of the programs and the editorials and the programs of the past and the interviews are all on the ADH app. It's all there and you can watch when it suits. I'll be back next week. Thank you for being with us. You are watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.